0: Refactor podcast is dedicated to chatting with tech people or software engineers. We talk about tech, but we also focus on their experiences, career, or side projects. You could get valuable insight into your own career and choices by listening to our guests. So today we have with us on this Refactor podcast episode, we have Roy Dirks, so, should I pronounce Roy Dirks or Roy Dirks on the American way? You're a software developer, you're a public speaker, you're an author and an entrepreneur. You call yourself a React guru and you're based in Amsterdam. Roy, hi, nice to meet you. Hi,
1: nice to meet you as well, Pierre.
0: Um, so, your position right now is engineering manager at Van de Broen, Amsterdam right it's a green tech company can you tell uh, a bit more about this uh this gig this position you're having right now
1: yeah sure so um it's actually my uh i often call the people my first real job because it's the first company there uh, where i work for that i do not own myself but um so last summer i made the switch by um, not being a full-time entrepreneur anymore but also to work for a company because uh, i feel my impact can be better if you're um, uh, with more people around and startups are usually quite small so last summer I made a move and uh, to Van der indeed which is a, a green tech innovator so it's an energy company that uh, is focusing solely on uh, renewable energy
0: great um, if you if, if we do just a little bit um, focus on your background you're what we call a self-taught um, developer software developer Um how did um, how did this interest for computers and programming begin? Uh, how did you get into technology, computer programming, stuff like that? Can you tell a bit uh, more about that?
1: Mm-hmm. So where did it begin? Um, I think when I, I'm actually one of the first generations that grew up with computers. So I think I was like uh, seven or eight, somewhere around that, when you had the first computer. So I think that already fascinated me. Um, but then after a while, I, um, I uh, used to watch a lot of DVDs, and it was hard to to get DVDs if you have just pocket money. And Netflix or other streaming services weren't around yet. So I actually came up with a platform where you could um, could buy and sell DVDs from other people. It's actually like a marketplace for movies, and then um, a lot of people just traded them for free. Uh, but of course, the platform needed to be built, and... Um, there was already some open-source web, web shop software available, so but not really to uh, to create a marketplace. I think marketplaces weren't really popular back then. Um, so I decided to, uh, to build it myself based upon a popular uh, e-commerce open-source platform. So that's actually how I what started. What was it? Uh, what was the
0: platform? What was um, the name uh, of the platform?
1: I first used uh, Magento, but then it became harder to write plugins, and then I switched to... Um, to opencart. Yeah, Magento
0: is quite, it's its quite a mess, right? It's, uh, it's a huge platform and I don't know if it if it has gotten better with times. Maybe now it's good. But uh, back at that time, it was a really big piece of software to install and to just like write plug-in. It was kind of heavy, um, very consuming for the machine and the servers. Maybe it was at that time also for you.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, actually a real MVP, uh, MVC model. So model view control things are really heavy for the, uh, for the server indeed. And back then you uh, it was hard to get like a full machine. So you had like the managed hosting things because you didn't have uh, serverless or really cloud native platforms. So um, yeah, I think nowadays it's way easier with things like Shopify. You can just start your shop or marketplace from the cloud without having to do anything.
0: So you're completely self-taught. I mean, you didn't do any, um, you know, any high school in computer science, any algorithmics, and any uh, um, program per se, but just just like you learned on the fly. Um, And you define yourself as a software developer. Uh, Does that mean that you don't consider yourself as a software engineer? And can you tell us a bit more about this distinction between software developer and software engineer and what lacks to the other and whatever?
1: Um, yeah, that's an interesting discussion indeed. Um, I think I basically just use developer because I, I mainly build client-facing things and I don't really, um, I mean, in the end, it's just like applying things that are already there. I think if you want to engineer your... Maybe working on groundbreaking algorithms or such things. That's something I don't really do. But then again, I often write architecture for uh, applications. So maybe at one point, I am a software engineer, I think. Uh, To me, it's like a potato potato. It's like you can be both or it could mean the same. And often companies uh, switch up the positions because it either sounds better or people... um, like an engineer position besides a developer position. So uh, I don't know, to me, they feel they feel like the same, but I guess uh, in general, you could say, if you think about how the code works instead of just use the code to make things work, uh, then that would be the same distinction between a developer and engineer. Um, but I think like, uh, like I told before, I work with React a lot, and React is a very declarative, uh, declarative uh, library. So I guess if you're working with React, you're mostly developing. If you're working maybe on the inner workings, so the internals of React, then maybe you're engineering. So um, yeah, that could be a way to compare them. And compared to
0: compared to other maybe software engineers that you um, worked with in your young career, and do you uh, have you ever found you know some skills or skill set that engineers had? And that you you may be lacking, or software developers, self-taught software developers could 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 lack, you know, or just like maybe some points uh, that they follow during their cu- curriculum or program that you would have been would have been valuable for you for your career or for your work for your gig.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was thinking about this. So when I went to university at some point. Um, I decided to go for economics instead of uh, software uh, engineering or like computer science, uh, because I actually followed some of the computer science courses, and um, they had an approach to. Um, there was a whole uh, class about uh, SQL, and basically the idea was that you could use SQL both by applying it practically, or you could uh, use functions or algorithms to determine what would be the best way to write a query, and. I don't know, to me, in the end, it felt like, yeah, I can do the, uh, I can write on the algorithms, uh, write up this, calculate which will be best option, or I just run them, uh, look at the log, see whatever is the fastest, so. You
0: mean uh, that um, maybe at the um, standard um, university curriculum, it was just like theoretical and it lacks practical, hands-on, uh, working and coding, actually coding, it's what you mean.
1: Yeah. So you learn a lot of theories, and there's often some pr- practical parts. But um, I don't really think the practical parts are fitting for whatever you would be using if you would start working at a company after that, because the theory is like um, the most important part. They um, they stimulate. Yeah, or
0: it's kind of detached from the market and what companies are actually using, in fact. Yeah. Okay, thanks for, for that. I think it's it's important to have also, uh, because on Refactor Podcast, we used to have a lot of software engineers and also a lot of people self-taught in um, uh, technology uh, and, and software development. And uh, it's important and I think it's really good to have different kind of focus on um, what the work actually is what you know the job actually is of being a software developer uh, getting back to your first job um, first real job in technology in writing softwares could you uh, talk a little bit about uh, about it and how do you find it or what uh, what was involved and uh, how did you manage also because as it was your first job maybe i suppose that you uh, felt uh, the imposter syndrome that we are talking a lot. And so if yes, how do you, did you uh, o- overcome this of, this syndrome?
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm actually trying to think back what actually was my first job because, uh, yeah, like I said, I mostly uh, started own companies or worked somewhere uh, freelance or so maybe a gig. So I think one of the, the first things I actually, might consider as my first job was I work, I was working on a project for a big uh, Dutch telephone company. And we had to create a TV guide application that was showing all the um, television programs on uh, television. Uh, but also was showing um, programs from streaming uh, services. So at first I was ju- not really hired to do the, the technical things. So I was mostly hired to uh, create a community around it because I've been um, a fan about for a lot of movies and TV shows before. Um, and then at some point I mentioned there were serious problems with the project that was created. So the application created the problems, the APIs, all the services surrounding. Um, and I already knew programming. So to me, uh, I was started uh, to, get, um, to get into that part of the application and also figure out what was going on. Um, so in the end, I ended up managing the the team with like uh, three engineers, uh, helping them with the architecture, try to define what the application should look like. Well, I was actually hired to do something completely different, so.
0: So yeah, you, you made your you made your way through through the top, or you made your way through um, getting your hands down dirty and like getting more and more scope, more and more missions to do uh, programming stuff. Actually, you, you were not hired to do that in the first place.
1: Uh, no, not really. and. Um, I think uh, how I often uh, how I often approach this is um, I don't really have the imposter syndrome because I usually like to go for challenges. So when I choose something, I go for a challenge and not so much figure out if I'm actually able to do it. So if you'd ask me, I probably can do anything.
0: Yeah, you, because a lot of uh, software developers uh, who I talked with um, kind of felt this imposter syndrome at one time or another. You know, this kind of, anxiety that you have when you uh, feel like you uh, won't be able to overcome certain problems, uh, won't be able to manage it, won't be able to close in time or to to deliver in time and whatever and whatever. And um, some of them tell me that no matter every, you know, all software engineers or software developers do have this imposter syndrome. And some of them are just living it a better way than the others, and uh, and and some of them are finding into this syndrome a kind of engine and motivation engine to kind of uh, look for challenges and 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 feel more confident in learning because it has to do with learning. In fact, you feel that way?
1: Um, yes and no? no. I'm not sure. I mean, actually. Um... So I've always been doing more than just programming, so maybe that also helps, but I usually try to see the challenge and then come up with a solution because I don't believe there's no solution, so the solution might not be the prettiest one. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would actually have something like the imposter syndrome, at least. I'm actually usually honest about it that I'm probably not the best developer around, Um, but I do have like a broader a broader scope, like I really try and figure out uh, what's all the things in there, what's everything you can do and try to come up with a solution that's like, uh, maybe not the best one, but it's a working one. And it's also one that, uh, in my opinion, is able to, uh, to scale and be used by other people.
0: So you you overcome this with a kind of confidence and optimistic vision of no matter we, we're gonna do it and it's gonna work in the end, uh, it's gonna be all right, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of uh, optimism and also confidence, but also like um, I was 14 when I first started programming, I'm now uh, 27. So I've been doing this for the last 13 years. So far, I always managed to, to do some things. So I guess I'll be fine in the future.
0: Yeah, um, talking about boot camps, Uh, Because I I read on your blog and uh, by um, looking at your your experience that you actually, um, you did a kind of uh, program to help refugees uh, to learn to code at one time in your career. Can you tell us about this initiative and uh, uh, where does this idea come from? I mean, uh, like helping people kind of social stuff like tech for good or so, something like that. Um, can you tell us about uh, this experience that you had?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this was like, um, I don't know, four years ago or something, uh, maybe more. Uh, so there were two guys in Rotterdam. They were doing their, um, their economic studies. And they felt like uh, they could do more than just studying and also have an impact on the world. Um, so what they did, they basically created a, a boot camp in which, um, not really refugees anymore, they were uh, what they called, uh, I'm not sure what the word it is, but they were in the Netherlands and they were accepted to become Dutch citizen, uh, but they came here as a refugee. So they've been here for like five years and now um, uh, they should integrate into society or into um, working environments. So they actually created a boot camp, and I helped them um, uh, during the curriculum um to help these people learn how to code and actually use this knowledge to uh, to start a career because often they uh often they already went to university in their own countries but um yeah the university degree wasn't applicable in the netherlands
0: yeah yeah and um in talking about boot camps like that uh i'm sure that you have uh, already uh, met a lot of uh, other software developers or software engineers Uh, Having followed these kind of boot camps, uh, uh, I mean, several months, curriculum and stuff like that. What do you think about boot camps, in your opinion? Uh, Are they good, bad? Uh, It depends on the people who are following the curriculum. And also, maybe, what are the pitfalls one should avoid, um, in your opinion, when choosing the right boot camp?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. So, like, uh, programming, uh, to become really good at it, you need a lot of... um... A lot of hours uh, of work, a lot of hours of experience. So I think a bootcamp is actually a really good way to start uh, programming, to figure out what your interests are. Um, but in the end, I don't think you compare it to actually study. So if you study something, you might be studying for three years. Then you do some programming, some theory, um, some practical experience. Uh, that's something you cannot compare to a bootcamp. Um, so I think bootcamps are great, but actually people especially companies that are hiring, they can't expect from someone that just finished a bootcamp to be like a full programmer that they can insert to every problem.
0: And um, what would be your, um, you know, this difference between hard skills and soft skills. Um, given your experience also and your background, uh, I'm sure you have probably uh, met a lot of young developers. Um, what are some skills uh maybe soft skills you've been they're lacking you know so maybe you've 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 came to uh, find a pattern uh young developers are like that or maybe they're like that or maybe they could be like that i i, I would have liked that they would be like that etc etc what, what what is a, a kind of soft skills that most of the young developers could try to work on to improve them, themselves because like working on hard skills is kind of easy you take You take, for instance, we're going to talk about your book that you've co-written with uh, uh, Gaetano Shesinski, uh, Full Stack GraphQL, The Complete Guide to Building Servers and Clients. In GraphQL, we're talking about your book later on. But on the soft skills, it's maybe more difficult for software developers to work on their weaknesses in terms of soft skills. What is your opinion about that, if you think about it?
1: Uh, yeah, I think you can always learn soft skills, but I mean, there's there's soft skills and there's soft skills. So if you're talking about something like being a leader, uh, leadership, that's a bit harder to, to, to teach to someone, I guess. Uh, but other soft skills could also be like something you, I often see lacking at junior developers is uh, trying to say no, because a lot of people are really enthusiastic. They want to take off every task. And then sometimes they're like, oh wait, I'm not able to do this task. I think it everything could be possible but then um yeah your employer should give you the time to uh, to actually make it happen or the right tool chain to um to do things so I would think one soft skill people can definitely um uh, learn is try to say no and also like clear communication like um if you find some problem just communicate it and then people can help you with something always maybe because of the imposter syndrome people might not feel confident to, uh, to notice people. They have a problem. Yeah.
0: Also maybe not let you drown yourself, you know, uh, just ask for help, uh, before it's too late. And the project is going right, right into the wall. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. And you mentioned in your blog that, um, having a mentor, uh, and motivation is what one really needs to, um, Learn and to become a software developer. Um, you you think it's important, and you you have uh, you have maybe a couple of mentors that you you can mention. Uh, how did you do that?
1: Uh, my mentors were um, mostly on the business side of things. So, for code, usually my mentor is like um, I actually get my knowledge from code by like hiring smart people and see what they're doing. It's not really mentoring, like you told me, it's like uh, uh, developing like, hard skills, which are easy, easier to copy. And I'm not sure if you need a mentor for that. I think you mostly need a mentor for like the, the soft skills thing. So help you with communicating things help you with setting clear expectations. Um, help you with figuring out what you actually want to do in life, uh, but maybe in your career as well. Um, so I think it's important to have mentors or like people close to you help you on the soft skill um, of things. And
0: are you yourself maybe um, some kind of mentor to anyone, uh, or have you already been asked to um, to mentor someone, uh, maybe on the on the on the coding part or on the business part, or on public speaking, information? Because it's, I think it's not easy, and we're gonna we're gonna go into that section uh, later on. Have you ever been asked to um, to mentor someone?
1: Uh, yeah, usually I usually mentor, mentor people that uh, that work at the same company with me, either like my own company or different company, and you're like their manager, so of course you're also uh, mentoring them. Um, if they need mentoring, some people don't need mentoring or don't feel um, like they need it. Uh, but no, outside that, I'm not really um, mentoring people on a, like a permanent basis. Sometimes I help people with small things, but not really in the long run. So um, yeah, if someone after this podcast feel they might need some mentoring, you can always follow me on Twitter and uh, maybe that could be a good solution for someone.
0: Yeah, we met on on Twitter, uh, not to mention that. Um, So you're a co-author of a book uh, that uh, was released uh, very early, um, the Full Stack GraphQL, the Complete Guide to Building Servers and Clients with GraphQL. At new line edition core written by with Gaeta Um I'm, I hope I, I pronounce it the correct way um, what is it all about even this the title is quite descriptive uh, and why um, did you need uh, to, to to write this book and then the last question what did it what did it bring to you to write a book
1: mm-hmm. yeah so uh, yeah like you told the the title is pretty descriptive so uh, the book is about GraphQL, and how you can build full stack applications, so clients and servers. And um, I think the difference with this book with a lot of other books that are around is that um, it's not really covering the basics. So of course, the basics are in there, but it goes further. So there isn't that much information to found about GraphQL, how you use it in production, how you build uh, something that's scalable, how you build something that goes beyond the documentation. So I feel a lot of uh, GraphQL libraries have very good documentation, uh, but documentation usually doesn't cover the complex parts. So that's something we try doing in this book. Um, I think we managed to do it. Okay. There's a lot of code in there. There's a lot of uh, descriptions. I believe uh, we have like 10, um, 10 or 11 chapters uh, covering the, the full process from like how to build clients, how to change thing in your client side, uh, have servers with authentication or more complex things like caching or data loader. Um,
0: yeah. And with and things can be very tricky with GraphQL, right? It can be can be difficult, can be hard.
1: Yeah, it can be difficult and I think GraphQL is also like a mindset. So you have more control of your data. Your data isn't just is no longer a representation of the tables in your database, but it's actually something completely different. Uh, written in graphs instead of tables. So Yeah, yeah you need a kind of, of, of
0: shift into your brain. To think like graphql and not just like um organized data like the old-fashioned rgbms uh, stuff
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely and also uh, there, there are relationships between different kinds of data so that's also something that's challenging because um you don't want an infinite amount of uh, relationships within your data because then you uh, yeah you try to lose sight of things and it gets complex and slow probably. And GraphQL was built to remain speed. So uh, if you don't use it correctly, then there's a lot of uh, things that could go wrong. Yeah, yeah. And
0: um, it was uh, it was your first book? or So you, it's the
1: um, it's the third book I've written. So my first okay. book was released... Uh, on the React,
0: right? You wrote yeah. another one on React. The, yeah, the, so the my first one. book
1: was about uh, React. It was like 12 React projects that you could build at the end of the book. So I think the idea of these two books is very similar. We, we want people to... Uh, learn how to write applications. You want to take them along the ride. So you want to start easy and then finish up with something more advanced. And something I always try to do in my book is add a lot of code. So actually, at the end of the book, you should have working prototypes, maybe multiple projects of things that you can actually use um, instead of just reading about theory and then having to apply it somewhere. And
0: um, I'm asking myself, um, given the... Um, the context right now that we have, uh, uh, we have massive information available online with MOOCs, with uh, tutorials, with how to, with complete documentation on the website, etc., etc. Is it still uh, something to write a book? I mean, uh, or is it a, a kind of exercise that you need to work on yourself? Or Is it maybe just for yourself also that you're doing and the exercise of writing a book, and um, what is the the value added of a book into uh, in 2020 uh, over the other types of, support, of, of material that we have right now, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, so you have different kind of learners. So you have people that learn by doing, you have people that learn by buying a book and going over all the materials, you have people that learn by uh, watching videos. Um, so for me, it's a combination. I don't watch that much videos because I get distracted a lot by a lot of things. Um and a book for me would be a good approach to learn new things, uh, but also finding exercises online. So it really depends on the on the type of learner you are. And uh yeah, but I do agree like a programming book is um uh most programming books, they are only usable within a certain time frame because in some years the materials might be outdated, so that's why, uh, of course, you have ebooks. Most ebooks nowadays are constantly updated. Um, and now, uh, so,
0: yeah. I, I'm, I'm a book lover. I'm, I'm just a book lover. Uh, once I used to own nearly 70% of the O'Reilly uh, um, you know, editions. Um, uh, I'm sure you know them, you know, with the, the small animals on the cover. And uh, so I really um, do. I, I like the way you can also. Uh, either bring your ebook uh on the tablet or, or just uh, bring it on in your bag and 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 keep it keep it close to you uh, and you don't have to you know to open your your computer and just like uh, and sometimes you need to type the code and to do it by yourself but sometimes also the visual memory can work on visualization of the code itself reading it make you also kind of a um, learn it, uh, in another way. Um, and what, what did it bring to you to, uh, to write a book? What is this exercise to write a book? Because I know that a lot of software developers are not all introverts and a lot of them would like to kind of, uh, try to Whether it's being a public speaker, becoming a public speaker, or whether it's being to kind of express yourself to the world, like talking to the world with public speaking, writing to the world, shouting to the world through a book. What did it bring to you um, to writing a book? What is this kind of exercise? What are your routines on writing a book? Is it, I can imagine that it's so much time consuming and a lot of effort to do to write a book. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so um, I think you compare, can compare it to like lower school. So I don't know what your lower school looked like. But at mine, you had like a set of exercises you had to take. And then some kids, uh, they finished faster, and then they had to teach the other kids or help them with things. And actually, by doing so you become better and smarter about what you're um, what you're doing. Because if you need to make things understandable to other people it takes an extra extra layer of understanding that you need to have. So the same can be applied to whenever you uh, want to teach someone or explain them how something works. You need to uh, think about it in a different way because your own mind works in your own way. So it's easier to do something because you know how to do it, but it's harder to explain someone how to do something that only you know. So the real exercise is in bringing those those things either on paper or uh, do them by voice or uh, find another way to really explain what a topic uh, topic is to someone else. And also, uh, as a software
0: developer, uh, having all this um, public representation, whether it's public speaking or or writing a book, it's all about also personal branding. And we're talking about personal branding, I mean, in 2020. uh, Do developers and software developers need personal branding, all of them? what would be your advice to uh, software developers? Because I know you're involved in communities, you're involved in public speaking, you're involved with uh, having companies and, and also writing books. So it's all about personal branding and your career in a sense. How do you manage all that? Is this all that plan? Is it, is it mandatory for uh, in your opinion that software developers need a kind of strategy in terms of personal branding?
1: uh i think it depends so uh, for me i'm an entrepreneur so it's interesting to do some personal branding i mean um, other people i know that are maybe work for a company and they get paid to visit conferences and such so for them it's maybe not so much uh, maybe not so much personal branding but um, i'm not really sure if you need the personal branding but it's always uh, always good to um, to invest in yourself to um, uh, make yourself aware to the public. Um, and I think and it really depends. So if you want yeah, to really. Also,
0: maybe you, you, you meet some new people through your activities, uh, uh, in public speaking or, uh, writing a book or having this conversation with me and, you know, uh, taking it further, uh, on a podcast or, or stuff like that. So it's also a question of growing your network in a sense.
1: Yeah, it's growing a network, and also uh, I think if um, if personal branding is like your number one reason to to write a book or to... it's not a good reason. No, it's not a good reason. So yeah, right. Uh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it. yeah, you do meet a lot of new people, a lot of new communities. If I look at last year, um, I actually I visited like 20 different countries and went to 30 conferences. Everywhere you meet people, you see new cities, you get new inspiration, also. So I think it's also important matter. Um, and also, you're to me, it's all about uh, meeting people, uh, also having fun, getting to know new cultures, but also like leaving a legacy behind. That at some point you want to. Uh, we all have to want to have our own footprint on the world. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so you're based in Amsterdam, Netherlands, right? Um, uh, as a company, we wanted to um, we wanted to open an agency in Amsterdam, but due to COVID nineteen, we kind of postponed this new development strategy. But that's another story. Um, I do love Amsterdam, and a lot of uh, French people love Amsterdam because it's a great city. Um, how is that Amsterdam is so dynamic in terms of its tech and technological ecosystem? How how do you explain that? I mean, it's one of the most dynamic city in Europe. Um, it, it just like it's challenging with London, Berlin, Paris. Uh, it's really thriving. How do you live it? I mean, do you feel this this dynamism?
1: Yeah, So there's a lot of uh, international people in Amsterdam. Um, mainly working for tech companies, I believe. Last year it was like. That over ten percent of all people in Amsterdam work for a tech company, so that's uh that's quite it's, a lot. So it's too
0: big, yeah, it's huge.
1: Yeah, I think one thing is like the the tax climate in the Netherlands is um very friendly to startups and tech companies. Um, which I'm not I sure is always are the best. But. Government
0: incentive and stuff like that for startups and tech
1: companies in Amsterdam. So that's quite good. So I think that attracts a lot of external people. And also if you look at the position of the Netherlands where um historically also seen like we have a very big harbor we have a very big airport uh a lot of people also see amsterdam as the entry to europe yeah. so i think that also works
0: it's a kind of it's a kind of hub in fact it's very central um and um i saw that uh during your career uh, recently uh, you had an experience with uh working with amsterdam city and and building projects uh and softwares for Amsterdam City, um, both of them around or with uh, open source components. Um, Is it the cities that decided to go open source? Is it like a kind of real will to uh, put some open source in the public uh, infrastructures and softwares? Or how did it go? And what is your opinion about
1: open source? even if I already know your opinion about open source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, I was working with the city of Amsterdam for the last uh, one and a half years, mainly on the open source projects that I did. And um, they chose to go open source because before they were uh, doing open source, they just hired companies to build something for them. And then they, um, um, they had it running and then people used it and that's it. So now they actually went for an open source approach because um there's multiple ways to look at it so you're actually paying things with uh money from the government it comes from people taxes so why not invest in something that the people could uh could use if they want um also a bit of transparency so people can actually see what's going on with the government money how is it spent how do we make sure it isn't going to companies that just use it for profit Uh, because yeah that's also the way you look at it if you spend government money on other companies that will pay taxes again, then it's sort of a circle you get into. Uh, and the third thing they had actually, which was a very good one, is if we open source it, we can actually make it better because more people are able to help us to collaborate, um, to have a clear vision about things. More uh, eyes on the code, on the source code. Yeah, so you have the source code open. And I think that also helped with the uh, the covert tracing app that the uh, Dutch government built was also open source. And I believe more... Uh, countries did it um, is, is it
0: working in your country uh, the the covid19 app you know the 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 tracking uh, the, the, of the of the case and the proximity sensors and stuff like that is it actually working in Amsterdam in your country
1: yes yeah, so it was released uh last month i believe um uh, it was a very slow process because it was um uh I don't know, it took a lot of uh, steps in the process to actually do it, and in the end, they decided to do it completely different. So it took them longer to, to finish it, but now it's there, and it's open source. Uh, and I believe uh, like three or four million people already installed it. Uh, out, if it's of, working, uh,
0: out of uh, how many people in uh, the Netherlands? Uh, there are around uh, 70 million people in the Netherlands. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's uh, one-fifth or something like that, like 20%.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think After it's quite a lot month. for something that, yeah. uh, yeah. isn't like obligated to, um, yeah. to use
0: it's not, it's not mandatory to download it and use it. Right. It's up to you, the users to you, to, to, to download it and to activate it.
1: Yeah. So it's advised. So there are a lot of, uh, TV commercials, a lot of, uh, adverts on the internet, communication. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, because we, we I, I'm talking about that because in France we had a, uh, a very tricky situation with our own version of the Proximity COVID-19 uh, alert uh, application. Uh, we had a first version which was a complete fail because it's just like, it was downloaded a few thousand, uh, a few hundred thousand times. And now the the second version has just been released a few days ago, and it seems to be better than the first one, Uh, but yet it has to prove its good effect uh, in the real life and to actually uh, kind of help uh, resolve this um, uh, pandemic. Um, It gave me a good good transition about uh, this pandemic, uh, which is uh, worldwide. How did you leave it from uh, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, and how do you see it in terms of its outcomes uh, uh, on the business, on the tech ecosystem? Maybe, maybe startups are having bad times right now. Can you tell tell us about uh, about the situation as you can see it right now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, in terms of work, it it hasn't changed that much because um, I was already able to work from home. Um, which are now doing a lot more, but, uh, to me, that really, uh, doesn't change. And a lot of people I know were already either working remotely or working part remotely. So in terms of that, I think for tech people were actually blessed, uh, with having the ability to work from home because a lot of people can't work from home. Um, and there are some startups affected, but then, um, also new startups arise. So I think in the end that will even out. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of like older companies that have troubles also in the Netherlands, and then I think it's also a way for us to to reflect and see like we all knew something like this could happen, and now it actually happened. So it could also be a fresh start. Um, and luckily, nobody uh, in my direct uh, environment was uh, was harmed by the virus. But let's uh, yeah, yeah, hope that uh, that remains. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, you're right. Um... I think it may be the moment to kind of stop on what we've already built and maybe uh, figure out how we can do something more sustainable and uh, and not get as fucked up as we are just right now. Uh, and I do also think that tech uh, would and should probably uh, need uh, to take a central part into um, the next. Model of the next system that we're going to build after this uh, this uh, this pandemic, um, yeah. Um, well, I don't have more question to ask. Maybe I wanted to ask uh, about uh, your public speaking experience uh, because we have already talked about your author experience, your career, uh, your involvement in, uh, in in bootcamp stuff like that. Um, public speaking, you told us that. Last year, you visited like uh, thirteen countries different countries uh, and um when did you start and 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 what do you what do you gain and how, how do how do we become a public speaker like that? What was your first experience public speaking was it maybe in a beta or something like that
1: uh yeah, I think it was in a meetup or maybe at a company that asked me to to do some speaking for them so um, in the beginning, it was a bit hard to get started. So I finally found a meetup that wanted to have me, uh, because I already enjoyed like uh, teaching people things. Um, and after the meetup finally got me, there were more meetups following. Uh, I sent out a lot of CFPs to different conferences, and they were all um, uh, all rejected. We, and then at rejected. one point, yeah, like yeah. two weeks before a conference started, they emailed me and said, "Hey, one of our speakers was sick, uh, so maybe you can step <laughs> in." Yeah. So that was actually the first conference I did. And, um, How was it?
0: It uh, was uh, a big audience. And which, which subject,
1: I suppose, React and stuff like that? Yeah, it was a React Native conference in uh in, Rusla, in Poland. Yeah. Um, I think it was quite big, like six or 700 people, maybe more. Yeah. Um, and How almost did you the you um, Facebook at that time. team was there.
0: Yeah. How did you feel at that time uh, talking in front of
1: uh, a very big audience? Uh, I don't know. I'm not really the the kind of nervous guy if I see the other people because I already know what I'm um what I want to talk about. And usually, I just see it as a um, as an interaction with the public. So I always try to be the same person with the same kind kind of tone of voice. Either if you speak with me like through a podcast or maybe with some online recording or at a conference or even at the drinks after the conference. I don't think there's much different in Um, how I approach things. I I also don't prepare my talks that much. I create the slides. Oh yeah,
0: you you, you don't just like, because uh, 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 we did a a podcast with someone who is also a public speaker and who told me that he really needed to kind of repeat like 20 times, you know, like repeat, 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 so that it becomes a kind of uh, automatism, you know, something like you don't even think about when you're uh, speaking uh, on live. Um, and, uh, and you, you don't prepare that much your, 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 public speaking experience.
1: Uh, no. Yeah. I don't prepare it. So I create the slides and then when I make the slides, I think of lines that might be good. And then when I go into the stage, I might have had a coffee with someone before and then have some new ideas. And then, um, I fill in the, the slides differently. But still the, the, the big outline or the big roadmap for the talk is always the same. Uh, but in that case, every talk will be slightly bit different because I might have other angles I want to light on. And I actually I tried preparing it sometimes to see if it was better. Uh, but actually, <laughs> when I prepared them, it was actually worse because then I was thinking, oh, what did I actually thought about for this slide? Oh wait, this is a yeah. new slide. What was actually yeah. online?
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 maybe the uh, the. Um... ROI uh, ROI on, on investing so much time and energy into preparing versus what it, what it gave you uh, in the end uh, into the experience was not uh, worth, uh, worth it. In fact, it was just like, uh, so you mean that if tomorrow you give a, um, you give a, uh, a conference uh, and I'm in the audience, and I come the day after, maybe the conference and, uh, uh, will be different, the talk will be, will be different, according to your mood, according to your meeting, according to you have taken a
1: coffee or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I always try to do a lot of live coding and those kind of things, and the slides will still be the same, but the whole uh, story around it might be different. So that's actually, I approach it as a as a conversation. So I'm just having a conversation with the audience, I have some slides that I want to show you. I have some live coding, uh, but the rest is just a conversation. And live
0: coding is also an experience. Live coding is also an experience and uh, you don't uh, be anxious until like, oh, fuck, it's not going to work because uh, the demo is not working or I have a typo or stuff like that. Or you don't repeat and you just feel confident.
1: I usually know what to do. If it doesn't work, then often the audience helps you and I think uh, nobody expects things to be perfect. So... And the end, is just programming i've been doing this for like 13 years already so uh
0: thank you uh roy uh i have a couple just of, of question uh, uh prior we uh put an end to uh this podcast um what will be your next plan for i mean of course uh, uh ending 2020 uh, the best way we can all of us uh, and, um, but what will be your next move 2021? What will be the next project? So do you have stuff in mind that you would like to achieve or you would like to, uh, to put a foot into, and, uh, could you tell me more about that? Or maybe you just, you just live the day after a day and you don't have given plan because we're in technology and, and it's evolving too fast and we cannot do plans.
1: I um I try to set really, really plans for like the next coming years. And usually I'm so enthusiastic that I reached them earlier. So uh, I started at a new company, uh, which we discussed previously, uh, like three months ago. So my main target for that would be is to help them. It's, a, it's an energy company. It's a renewable energy company. Uh, one of my goals is to make them also an open source company. So I want to do most of the things that we build should be open source and they should be uh available to everyone and then another company i have by myself is uh that i'm going to start investing startups um like as a small uh small angel uh, pre-seed investments so okay okay
0: so it's the first experience into being a, a seed investor and uh so you're going to what to like have to do you work through a syndicate or something like that, that you have uh, many, many venture capitalists and many business angels uh, joining together to create a syndicate or are you going just to be a solo angel and just uh, fund and give money to projects that, you know, uh, that you love and that you, that you fall in love with?
1: Uh, It will be both. So, um, it will be mostly through um, a group of other people. And then, um yeah, if there are some startups that are uh, especially interesting for me to uh, to follow, then uh, that's something I'd like to invest in as well because, yeah, it's the first time I'm actually not uh, a full-time entrepreneur right now. So I actually want to help other entrepreneurs in reaching their goals. So I think it can add a lot of value, not just with money. I think money should be, uh, just enough to, to, under, to help the, uh, the founders, but mostly by knowledge and advisors uh, and, and maybe yeah. even mentoring them.
0: Yeah. Giving insights, giving your point of view, your focus and yeah. helping with preventing them from, yeah. uh, yeah, of course.
1: from make mistakes that I
0: previously made. Yeah, Right. Right. So in a sense, it's also giving back to the community, uh, what you already did with public speaking, what you already did also with, uh, writing books, and uh, what you already did during this boot camp for uh, refugees and and young, uh, new citizens of the Netherlands. So I think it's a it's a good uh, it's a a good point for you uh, to do that. Thank you very much, Roy. Uh, It was a pleasure chatting with you and uh, I hope for our listeners as well. I'm sure that they will uh, learn a lot of things about yourself. And uh, I wish you good luck also for your books. which is available online, of course. Thank you very much, Roy. Yes, thank you. Happy
1: to have have been here today. Vous êtes
0: développeur ou développeuse Vous souhaitez vous former sur des frameworks JS modernes comme React ou Node Retrouvez nos formations Flint
1: Academy en cliquant sur le lien en description.